The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about healthcare investing. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases. From COVID to monkeypox, we've got a full agenda today. Welcome, Josh. Let's get started. Hi, Lauren. Good to talk to you. And likewise. So, Josh, COVID is everywhere, it seems. We can't escape it. Friends, family, colleagues, everybody seems to be getting sick these days, but fortunately not too sick. So let's start with an update on COVID statistics. Where are we headed? Where are we at this point in the virus? Yeah, I, I, as you say, it's everywhere. Um, I had it uh, last <laughs> last week. Um, feeling oh, fine no. now, but yeah, but uh, not. I hope so you're bad. better now. I yeah, hope, I hope it wasn't too severe. severe. No, no, it's pretty mild. Um, so we, we got lucky. But you know, over the past two weeks, um, cases are up about thirty percent in the U.S. Hospitalizations are up about twenty nine percent, and deaths are, are rising too. You know, for a while in this. You know what seems to be a, a surge that the U.S. is in. Deaths were not um, not climbing, but that that's no longer the case. They they are um, climbing uh, slowly, but but they're up. Is there um, any explanation for that? For 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 the climb being yes, beginning. Well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people with COVID now, and, and I, I think it's widely understood that the case count that we're seeing is only reflective of maybe half of the real caseload. Um, be, be because of, you know, the existence of, of home tests now, which don't get reported to these numbers. These numbers only include right. you know, lab-confirmed PCRs, and that's certainly not the majority at this point of people who, who, who do have COVID cases. It, we are seeing cases dropping slightly in the Northeast where Omicron hit first. But I got to say, like, w- one thing that has become difficult to keep track of is which 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 bit of the omicron wave we're in you know um right now the dominant variant in the u.s is ba 2.1 2.1 that's the like the name of elon musk's next child yeah or a star wars robot <laughs> yeah. but it's the uh it's 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 actually the um this is the the variant that emerged in central new york just a month ago it, it was wow. announced or flagged by um by uh by, by new york state experts um so, you know, I mean, and that and that has pushed out the um, the original version of BA2, which pushed out BA1 in turn. So, you know, variants are cycling very quickly. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that's happened is that uh, folks will recall that the CDC a number of months ago sort of reset its COVID guidelines and set up a whole new um, way of flagging like high risk, low risk parts of the country and they set it up in, in such a way that when they announced it you know virtually all the country was not high risk and now about 10 percent of the country under the new criteria is at a high alert level including new york city um so you know it's it's pretty clear we are in the midst of a heavy period of of covid infection 
Um, and, 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 you know, whereas that we're not hearing the kind of reports we heard during the early parts of the Omicron wave, for example, of overtaxed healthcare systems, um, there certainly are a growing number of people in the hospital. So this thing does not seem to have seasonal ebbs and flows. It just always flows. It's just, it, it seems to evolve too quickly, um, to, to be on the annual cycle that we are familiar with, with, uh, with the flu. With the flu. Right. You know, we, we keep having an expectation that we'll have a lull until the summer or sorry, a lull until the winter wave, but that, that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, so there's still predictions of some sort of more serious, uh, wave in the winter or in the fall. Um, but, but there is something happening right now. It's not, it's not a lull. I mean, a lot of people certainly are living as though we're in a lull. Um, and, and maybe that's the right choice, but, um, but, you know, levels of COVID infection are not particularly, are, are not down in the country right, right now. Right, right. Very much not so. It's really quite amazing. Another upsetting. So if you thought COVID was bad enough, now it seems we have to deal with something new called monkeypox. What is monkeypox? Where is it manifested? And how serious is it at this point? Yeah, look, I mean, I think most listeners have probably heard of this by now. Um this is a virus that's similar to smallpox or related to smallpox that has been endemic in certain parts of Africa um, for a number of decades, um, though is is quite rare outside of Africa um, and hadn't been seen uh, ever in the U.S. until 2003 when a number of people got it from prairie dogs. But this is a pet prairie dogs that had been in contact with um, uh, uh, some sort of other pet rodent that it been brought from somewhere in Africa where uh, monkeypox uh, is more widespread. But right now what's happening is, is very much unlike that. It, it seems to have been popping up in more than a dozen countries where it's not endemic. I think the bottom line here is that, you know, this is not COVID. It seems to be passed only through close contact. Um, it's not going to be the kind of thing where it's getting passed around through aerosols in a, in a widespread way and tons of people are getting sick. That said, it's not good. You know, this is a virus that has not traveled widely around the world, and and now it seems to be. Um, and there's all sorts of ways in which it could um, be a problem, especially if it becomes established in an endemic way and in in, in certain parts of the you know, more more broadly around the world. So, um, are companies working on monkeypox viruses or rather vaccines? We there already is an approved monkeypox vaccine in the U.S. It is a a drug called, I'm sorry, a vaccine called Gineos. Um, and it's developed and approved for a company called Bavarian Nordic. Um, and that's a small uh, uh, European uh, drug company. Um, and and, and they're, they're, they are publicly traded, actually. They're, they're over-the-counter ticker in the U.S. is BVNRY. Okay. Um, the, the other thing is that smallpox vaccines work for monkeypox. There's an approved smallpox vaccine in the U.S. Um, that uh, is from a company called Emergent Biosolutions. You might remember them from some um, <laughs> from from their work during the COVID pandemic. They yeah. helped manufacture vaccines for a number of companies, most notably Johnson and Johnson. There were a lot of problems with their plants, and um, they have they've seen a lot of negative attention for that, including various investigations. Um, but they, they have a, a smallpox vaccine that is also stockpiled in the U.S. Um, I think if you look at the labels for the smallpox vaccine and the monkeypox vaccine, the monkeypox vaccine seems to be better tolerated 
Um, it's not clear at all if people are going to be given these. Uh, it's not clear at all how widespread this is really going to be. But, you know, the, the technology exists to prevent these infections. The other thing is there's, there's also an, an antiviral approved in the European Union to treat monkeypox. The company is called uh, SIGA Technologies. Their ticker is S-I-G-A. And um, that antiviral is, uh, is called T-pox. Um, so, you know, uh, for, for Bavarian Nordic, um, they are certainly seeing some interest from governments around the world to get access to supplies of this vaccine that they have. Their, their stock is up pretty sharply over the past week. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're, it's not, it's not yet at all clear how widespread an issue this is going to be. It's just, it doesn't seem great. I, I will say many of the cases identified so far are in England in the UK. Uh, that may be because it's happening first or more broad, broadly there, but also, you know, as we know from COVID, the UK has very good, um, public health system and very good patient monitoring. So it, it may just right, be that they're, they're looking. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, we are not out of the woods, that's for sure. So let's talk about some better known, bigger biotech and pharma stocks. Biogen, which is perhaps best known for its troubled Alzheimer's drug, announced this month that its CEO is leaving. And I understand, Josh, there's been a bit of a parlor game going on in the industry and on Wall Street as people try to predict the likely successor. So I know you're not a gossip, but what names are you hearing? And more important, really, what are the big challenges and issues that await the next CEO? Yeah, so well, let's start start with the challenges. And I think you know, listeners who've been listening to us for a while will will have heard some of this before. I mean, the big headline is Agilehelm, right, which is their Alzheimer's drug. Um, they announced just uh, a couple of weeks ago when they announced that that their CEO is leaving, that they're going to basically end their efforts to their commercial operation for, for Agilehelm. And, you know, as, as we've said before, what's happened here is that, um, the center for Medicaid, Medicare services has basically said that Medicare is for all intents and purposes, not going to cover Agilehelm. Um, and that, um, you know, that kind of kneecaps the program in as much as, um, the vast majority of patients in the U S who are suffering from Alzheimer's are covered by uh, Medicare. Um, so, you know, but, but Agilehelm was not the end of the troubles for Biogen. They, just a, many, if not all of their most important products are facing new threatened or increased competition. There's a drug called Spinraza for a condition called spinal muscular atrophy that's facing some serious competition. Tecfidera, an MS drug, is faced um, generic competition earlier than was expected. The company does have cash to um, do some M&A to try to you know, reinvigorate interest in, in, in their pipeline. Um, you know, the other thing that's been discussed is the possibility that they'll try to restructure to try to make themselves, a um, an attractive acquisition target. Um, that we, we should say that there's an important data readout coming this fall on another Alzheimer's drug called Lecanemab on which they are partnered with ISI, a Japanese pharmaceutical company. You know, if the Lecanemab read, readout is very positive, it would be surprising, but it would also be a um, totally change the story for Biogen. Um, but uh, putting that aside, you know, much of what's going on at Biogen is that they really need some kind of transformation. So, you know, I, I, there was an interesting note out earlier this week from an analyst at RBC Capital Markets named Brian Abrahams, and he he listed 
some names, a, a large number of names. And it was interesting to sort of see what he and, and the people he speaks with had in mind. Um, you know, one, one name that came up is uh, the CEO of Biohaven, which is a company that sells a migraine drug called uh, Nurtech that um, Pfizer has struck a deal to acquire for $11 billion. Um, this guy's name is Vlad Korik. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine he'd be available. <laughs> the, the Pfizer acquisition won't close until next year. And after that, he is going to be leading uh, sort of a new biohaven that basically the, the company is going to keep or there will be a new company to hold everything that biohaven had in its pipeline aside from the migraine drug and, and some other related drugs. That's so he, it. May be, he may be busy. <laughs> he may be busy. But, but you know, I think he, he is one of a number of people who Abraham has mentioned who, you know, have experience selling a big company. So, you know, he also mentioned um, the former CEO of Arena, which is another company that Pfizer recently bought um, named uh, Amit Munshi. Pfizer bought them for about $7 billion. He mentioned the CEO of Alexion, uh, who led the company when it got bought by AstraZeneca. Uh, he mentioned uh, Brent Saunders, who's a longtime um, uh, executive in this area who, who led Allergan when it got bought by AbbVie, you know, and then he talked about, um, you know, some, some pharmaceutical industry, prominent people within the pharmaceutical industry. There's a, um, an executive at Eli Lilly named Ann White, who leaves their, leads their neuroscience division. Um, she's run their Denatamab program, which is a, a similar Alzheimer's drug to Adjahelm and Lecanemab. She, she would sort of be logical, logical pick um there's also jeffrey leiden who is the ceo of vertex um during as it developed its cystic fibrosis franchise and kind of um, revolutionized the treatment of that condition he's now the um i think the chairman of vertex's board but he's not the ceo anymore he also mentioned you know a, a biogen executive named uh, alicia alimo i think she's their president but um you know said uh, you, you sort of you sort of need someone to really excite investors at this point. It might be challenging to do with um, with an internal hire, um, unless you know potentially the counter works out, which might change the, the the thinking. I mean, basically, Abraham's was saying they need someone who can do big M and A or who can make it that 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 company attractive to an acquirer. So you know, I, I think these names probably don't mean a ton to um, to listeners who aren't steeped in this stuff but but it is it, you know it, it's an important choice that this this board's going to need to make that will um you know hopefully give investors an opportunity to get some value out of out of biogen this tells me that there are a lot of um good people floating around the biotech industry and also that the company has a lot of issues and anybody who gets involved here is going to have a big challenge yeah i mean you know it is on the one hand a a prestigious role in is in, in that it is you know one one of the small class of large cap biotechs on the other hand it's 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 in a tough position and it'll take a lot of work to you know achieve a, a positive and and um and and uh, productive outcome how's the stock doing do you happen to recall um i mean look no 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 but, but <laughs> the stock hasn't been doing great over the past um year or, or so it's down 15 percent this year and 24% over the last 12 months. But if you looked at the 24 month window, which I don't have in front of me, it's, it's not, uh, it, it's worse actually. Yeah. It's, it's down 35% over the past two years. The S and P is up 38% over the same period. 
All right. Well, that's the kind of inversion we don't really <laughs> want to see. But yeah, I mean, opportunity yeah. also. I guess so. That's true. For the right person to come in. Right. So moving on, let's talk about Pfizer, which has bought up quite a few of the companies you just mentioned. The company is working on COVID vaccines for children. Can you update us on what's in the pipeline, how it's looking, and how widespread it might be in terms of use? Yeah, so there's been a bunch of news over the past couple of weeks on this. Um, you know, the the state, the situation right now is that there's no COVID vaccine for anyone under the age of five. And for five to 11-year-olds, you can get um, two doses of the, of the Pfizer vaccine. The, the simpler news is that um, the CDC and, and FDA uh, last week authorized a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine for children five to 11. Um, you know, vaccination levels remain quite low in that age group. Only about 30% of children who are eligible actually have been vaccinated. Um, so on like a broad societal level, it's not clear how helpful it's going to be to authorize this booster because, you know, most of the people in the age group haven't even gotten the first two doses. But, you know, for the children who have gotten the first two doses, it does seem as though a third dose, you know, could give them added protection. The other uh, more, I think, interesting and, and complicated thing that's happened is that Pfizer put out data on its three-dose vaccine series for children under five. And again, this is the age group that has no um, vaccination options at this point. And, you know, people, especially parents of people in this, of children in this age category, will have followed this very closely and will remember that this has been a very long time coming. You know, Pfizer in December said that their original trials of, of two doses in this age group didn't turn out very well. So they were going to add a third dose to the series. Um, then the FDA had them submit the data on the first two doses anyway, and ask for the EUA for the first two doses in this young, you know, uh, six month to five year age group. And, and, and then with the understanding they would supply the third dose data when it was ready. And then at the last minute, the FDA canceled the meeting where they were going to consider the first two doses. Um, parents sort of lost their minds a little bit. Uh, and then Pfizer said that three-dose data would come in April. It did not come in April, but it finally came um, Sunday, uh, Monday morning. And it looks really good. Um, there's, they, they, they have a preliminary analysis that says that, it's, that the three-dose series is 80% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. And that's you know higher. And then that is during, the third dose is given during Omicron. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that number, you, know, you can expect vaccines are going to be better in children and younger people than they are in older people, but they're better immune systems in general. Yeah. But, but, you know, 80% is not the kind of number we see in the Omicron era. The other, you know, we, we don't have um, comparisons for the age group, except that Moderna's, uh, which has also asked for authorization of its vaccine in the same age group. They released some data, I think a year, a week before that, and their numbers, their efficacy numbers for the two-dose series were lower. They haven't asked for a three-dose series. It's very confusing. There's a lot of different series here, different manufacturers. The bottom line is that the FDA uh, in the middle of June is going to have some meetings to consider um, vaccines for the stage group, both for um, the Moderna and for the Pfizer. Uh, and so, you know, finally, it seems um, as though parents for children aged under five will have an option to vaccinate. 
um, mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, sometime in, in mid, mid to late June. Which is kind of important because kids are picking up COVID at schools and at daycare centers and bringing it home. It's true. I mean, you know, the cost benefits for this age group are obviously challenging because, uh, you know, um, risk tolerance is, is, is low for young children, obviously, and, and appropriately. And, and also, you know, the rates of serious disease in, in young children are very low. Um, and uh, for, for serious disease for, for COVID infections are, are very low relative to other age groups. Um, and, you know, so you need to make sure that the cause benefit makes sense. And you also want to make sure you're not, um, you know, vaccinating a, a young child to I mean, you, you need to think about the individual cost and, and benefit. Right. Now, um, you know, the, the, the safety of these vaccines in this age group seems very good, but we'll see what the FDA's advisors um, and experts say at their meeting um, in a couple of weeks. Would any of this move the needle on Pfizer's stock? I think we're sort of past the point where, um, you know, uh, ch childhood vaccines are going to move the needle for, for Pfizer. Um, you know, uh, people understand that Pfizer vaccine sales are going to be very, very high this year. The question is, are they durable next year or in the year after? And that's, you know, one of the, the, the that's sort of the big question weighing on this, this stock or one of the big questions weighing on this stock, how long are the the COVID sales, both from the vaccine and its therapeutic um, Paxlovid going to last? Um, and, and also, you know, what's going to happen when Pfizer's, um, some of its key products lose their exclusivity early, um, sorry, the, towards the end of this decade. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that these, these developments are, are moving the needle. It's really about longer term, what's going to happen to vaccine therapeutic and COVID therapeutic sales for Pfizer. And the stock's down about 7% this year. Um, um, which, well, when uh, I think back to our earlier conversation about the pervasiveness of COVID and its tenacity, you have to think that this is going to stick around for a while and the opportunity for Pfizer will therefore stick around. I think that's certainly a strong, there's, there's definitely a case to be made here that, you know, analysts and investors might be underestimating how long this is going to be mm -hmm. a major issue for us. Yeah, that is pretty much what I was saying. Yes. So better said. So speaking of the stock market, it seems to be enjoying a bear market bounce this week, but biotech stocks are still deeply in the red after last year's route. You recently spoke with a money manager who has an interesting idea about a reset for the stocks in the sector. Can you explain it to us? What's his idea and um, why does he think there's an opportunity here? Uh, yeah, so I, I was talking with the, the guy at Exome As Asset Management named Sami Asan. And he had a really interesting idea. I mean, as you say, you know, biotech still down the tubes. The um, the SPDR S and P biotech ETF is down nearly fifty percent this year. Um, <laughs> and and so what he said was, this, there's basically an opportunity, sort of for for what he called a washout period in the middle of the spring. And what he said was, you know, the Russell two thousand, which which is an index very widely followed that that includes small and mid cap. Uh, U.S. stocks um, is very heavily um, biotech. There's more than 100 biotechs in there right now. And that's because there was an IPO wave in 2020, 2021 that brought a ton of small biotechs into the public, public markets. Um, and they haven't done so well. You know, last year, the smallest market cap at which you could qualify to get into the Russell 2000 was around $250 million. 
Um, and when I looked at this a couple of weeks ago, there were around 80 biotechs in the Russell 2000 that were below that level. Now their, their market cap has fall, fallen below that level. Now we don't know where the floor is going to be for the Russell 2000 next year uh, when they, um, when they reconstitute the index, which happens at the end of June. Um, but I think we can assume that a lot of these small biotechs are going to be dropping out. And what Asan said was that this is going to create a, a liquidity moment. And the situation in biotech is that more than many other sectors, it really relies on specialists to, 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 to you know, make these investments. I mean, most people are not qualified to d- distinguish between you know, one company's early stage clinical data and another, and to make these um, sort of early stage bets in, in the small mid cap biotech space. But a lot of that um, specialist capital is tied up in um, these companies that IPO'd in 2021 and 21 that, that mm-hmm. haven't done so well. And there's apparently just like not a lot of liquidity in some of these stocks, and it's very hard to unload those positions. And um, Asan believes that when the Russell 2000 um, reconstitutes the companies that drop out, there will be sort of a, a liquidity event. There will be a lot of, there will be buyers who will show up to buy these more distressed stocks and it'll give specialist investors an opportunity to free up their capital to take the losses and reallocate that money to real companies, I mean, the companies with better prospects. So, you know, it's not as though the XBI is going to like bounce back in June, but it's an argument for why, you know, the second half of this year, sometime next year, there will be an opportunity for uh, something of a reset in the biotech sector. So there'll be a purge when these stocks come out of the Russell? That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then an opportunity to pick them up much cheaper. Mm-hmm. So, well, no, sorry, sorry. No, the, the, the idea is not that people will actually, that, uh, you know, uh, biotech investors will go for these stocks. Biotech investors are done for these stocks, are done with these stocks. I mean, there may be people looking for distressed assets or, or retail investors who, who are interested in them. But I think the idea for biotech is that the specialists will be able to spend that capital on more promising, more productive biotech. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of speculative stuff. Less, I mean, biotech is right. apparently speculative, but not not the right, right, not right. These the stocks that are that are sort of washing out, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We'll we'll have to circle back later in the year and see how that's that's played out. So I want to go to a couple of listener questions, then we can come back to a topic or two. Um, Jim asked a question about the estimated growth for major pharma companies' dividends. And I wonder if you can give us an overview of the dividend picture for some of the biggest pharma stocks. Sure. Yeah. You know, a lot of investors go to big pharma for the dividends. Precisely. Um, the, the, the biggest the biggest dividend yields among the big pharma, at least the U.S. big pharma firms right now is, uh, you know, AbbVie is at 3.9%, Merck's at 3.4%, Bristol's at 3.2%, and Pfizer's at three at 2.7%. You know, if you, if you look at, um, the analyst estimates looking out a few years, um, analysts generally do expect most of these to continue to grow. You know, AbbVie, for example, has consistently raised its dividend since it spun out of Abbott, Abbott um, almost 10 years ago. Um, the, the facts that analyst consensus right now is that the dividend yield will, will increase to 4.7% in 2027. Now, you know, um, AbbVie is beginning to face competition next year for Humira, its main drug. So 
you know, depending on how that goes, you, you could make a case that potentially there will, um, I, that, 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 that might be challenged in some way, but um, that's certainly not the consensus belief right now. Um, you know, facts that also has uh, Merck's dividend yield going to 4.2% from the current 3.4% in 2027. So, you know, it seems as though analysts expect those real top dividend payers to continue increasing their dividends and their dividend yields to keep climbing um, over the next four, five years. Well, they're certainly above the 10-year treasury yield. <laughs> and, and as you note, investors do tend to come to defensive things like pharma stocks in a market like this. So Lee asks, um, he notes that several mega drug stocks like Merck have been stalwarts in the current market precisely for these reasons. They pay big dividends, they have good cash flow, and they're not terribly speculative at all. Do you see the strength of stocks like Merck or Pfizer continuing? No, yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great point. And I think we're we're in a moment where people are looking for these sort of um, defensive plays. You know, obviously, uh, Merck and Pfizer are both companies that are seeing some um, uh, patent challenges or, or exclusivity challenges with their key drugs in the coming years. So that's something to keep an eye on. But, um, but I, yes, I, I think that the, the logic that's pushed people into these these stocks over the past few months is not going anywhere. They also seem to have plenty of money to acquire other companies and replenish their pipelines. Isn't that so? Yeah, and that, and that's sort of the um, the case that Pfizer is making right now, that it has a, an M&A strategy that will allow it to bolster its, um, its revenues uh, towards the end of the decade. And, and they certainly have the cash to do it. Um, but, you know, just like biotech investing is speculative, um, uh, you know, M&A in biotech is also in, in pharmaceutical and biotech is also challenging. You don't buy approved drugs all the time. Sometimes you're buying drugs in phase three and, and trials don't always work. So it's not a guarantee, but certainly Pfizer um, is hoping that it'll, it'll, it'll work out for them over the next mm -hmm. four or five years, five or six, seven, eight years. Challenging business for sure. So Hal asked a question about boosters. Is the advice to take a second booster now or wait for a new vaccine in the fall that's tailored toward the next wave of COVID? What are people saying? I'm not going to give you're not medical a doctor, advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think we can really advise one way or the other. I think people should talk to their own physicians about that question, but it is certainly a question that's being asked. Yeah, that that's the part I really wanted to get at. Has there been a lot of talk about a new vaccine in the fall targeted at a specific variant of COVID? Uh, yeah, so so um, in a couple, I guess in a month now, uh, a month from today or tomorrow, uh, the FDA is going to hold a meeting where they will say, where, where they're going to, their, their vaccine advisors are going to decide whether they will ask for a fall vaccine that specifically targets um a different strain or use the original vaccine again in the fall. Um, you know, as we reported, Moderna CEO said to us that they are only able to do a BA1 specific vaccine or a BA1 slash, you know, Wuhan strain bivalent vaccine or a, use the same thing. They won't be able to like pick some other variant. Um, if for example, you know, Verpac, uh, the, the FDA advisors, in a month say, you know, we want you to do a BA2 specific vaccine. Moderna essentially said a few weeks ago to us that they, they won't be able to do that. Pfizer has been spoken a little differently. They, they seem to say, um, 
they can turn something around in 100 days. So potentially they they think they could. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's quite strange the way it's playing out. And, um, you know, the FDA says they have assurances from their, the companies they've spoken to that, that if they make the pick in, in late June, it'll be possible to get it ready for the fall. Um, so um, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I, I don't really know what's going to happen. Kind of a crazy situation. It is. It, it just changes too quickly to make your decision too far out. And yet it's not trivial to make hundreds of millions or billions of doses of a, of a new vaccine and how are you going to test it in, in time? And there's lots of very complicated questions. It's probably the hardest vaccine related question of the pandemic after are we going to be able to make these things in the first place? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So Carol asks whether you followed Medtronic's report today. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, you know, Medtronic, uh, just like the other companies in the um, medical device sector took a big hit early in the pandemic as um, all sorts of procedures were postponed and, and canceled. Um, and they reported earnings today that missed guidance. They'd laid out just a month, uh, just a couple months ago. Um, you know, I, they're, they're now pointing to the impact of supply chain issues. They've also said that the uh, lockdowns in China have been a big problem for them. Um, but, you know, it's with, with Medtronic, you know, they, they've, they've said that, I mean, last summer they sort of said to me that COVID was sort of in the rear view for them. But, you know, the nursing shortage in the fall, last fall was a, was a real problem um, for Medtronic. And, you know, they keep hitting these roadblocks. But they're quite confident about, you know, getting out of this and, and moving forward in the future. I, I think they don't see an underlying problem with their business. They just keep getting hit by these various COVID-related um, uh, problems. Right. Well, I'm glad Carol asked the question, sort of hot off the presses, right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So we're going to have to wrap it up there today, but thank you, Josh. Great call. Lots of good information here. Thanks for talking. And thank you to our listeners for your wonderful questions and for staying with us. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the topic is advancing equity and access. Penta's Abby Schultz will speak with Jackie Rantanen of Hamilton Lane, Garrett Wilson of Hurdle Morgan, and Sean Vereen of Stepping Stone Scholars about Stepping Stone's work to foster social mobility through education. That's it for today. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.